welcome to the Cloud Pod, where the forecast is always cloudy. We talk weekly about all things AWS, Google, and Azure. We are your hosts, Justin, Jonathan, and Peter. Episode 72, recorded on May 20th, 2020. 13 reasons why this episode is better than the last one. Good evening, Jonathan, Ryan, and Peter. <laughs> hey, how's it going, Justin? Uh, it's another beautiful week in quarantine. I don't know what year it is. I don't know what day it is. It's just Schmurz day. That's all I know. Yeah. I actually, I actually woke up on Tuesday morning and thought it was Sunday. <laughs> <laughs> oh. On a one-on-one earlier, someone asked me how it was going. I said, well, it's it's Friday, right? <laughs> like, nope, it's not It's not Friday. Oh, then it's not going well. Yeah. And I chewed my daughter out over the weekend for not having taken the trash out, except it wasn't Sunday. It was still Saturday. So bonus, I felt like I got an extra day from the weekend. <laughs> That's kind of nice. Usually it works the other way around. This weekend, technically, we do have an extra day because it's Memorial Day. So. Yeah. And what are you doing this Memorial Day? Yeah, I'm going to stay home. Yeah, I'm gonna stay. Yeah. I look, I look to see if there's any beaches within a reasonable drive, but nothing, nothing's open. It's been a busy week. Uh, Microsoft Build was yesterday. Well, started yesterday. I think it's a virtual conference all week. Uh, so there's some interesting stuff from Azure this week. Uh, not a lot, mostly development stuff. You know, this is the famous conference where uh, Steve Ballmer yelled, "Developers, developers, developers!" It's made fun of still today, but uh, so it's, it's more of a developer conference, which is awesome. But uh, you know, so there's a little bit of Azure stuff for us, but we'll get to in a little bit. Uh, we didn't do predictions for that because. Uh, well, it just wouldn't have worked out. So, <laughs> which I had no idea on anything Asia announced. So, I would have done really badly. But no, I, th- I think I would have. I would have predicted that they were going to open source something because they've just been doing that recently. They've, they've, they've realized the error of their ways. Yeah, maybe. I'm going to take that point. <laughs> <laughs> and since you have an answer, I'll let you win. So there you go. Excellent. You win. Thank you. Thank you won you. the Asia Asia uh, build uh, draft. We didn't do. So you're welcome. Yeah. Well, uh, you know, I was, of course, going through the internet, as I always do, uh, looking for news stories. And I found this little beauty from InfoWorld that I wanted to share with you guys. 13 ways Google Cloud beats AWS. And so I was curious, you know, there's some things that I think Google does better. And there's some things I think they do worse. And it's always curious to see what other people think. And so... Uh, you know, I started going through this article and I realized that he made the first sin of Google Cloud, which is that he assumes Google Apps uh, are Google Cloud, <laughs> which is not really the case. Uh, and, you know, it's sort of weird because I see why you make that mistake because Azure has Office 65, which is their cloud for Google Apps uh, type competitor. And then AWS has really nothing because WorkMail is garbage and no one uses it, as well as WorkDocs and some of those other things. So, you know, ultimately, I kind of see the confusion, but ultimately, if your reasonings for Google being better than AWS are going to be based on Google Apps, that's a bit of a, cha- a challenge. But I, I wrote a great Twitter thread on this and complained loudly, and people responded back to me uh, on Twitter. But I thought I'd get your guys' take on, on all of these amazing features and see what you think of them compared to uh, AWS. So the first one is uh, Google Chrome for Enterprise. This is the ability for you to deploy Chrome to all of your Windows or Mac desktops and then lock restrictions and limit uh, apps that get installed into Google Chrome and uh, force homepages, uh, which my corporate employer does, which is really annoying because I don't like their homepage they've set for me. And I can't change it. Having an offering like that doesn't make them better than AWS. It makes yep. them uh, corporate shields. <laughs> yeah, so the first one was a, was a big swing and a miss. That was, that was the first one in the batch. and I, That's when I knew I was in trouble. Security likes that one though, because they're they are really easy to lock those things down. Not just from a functionality standpoint, but um, from a standpoint of getting compromised. The uh, the next one was uh, app scripts, uh, which are macro like solutions for Google Cloud apps. Now I don't know about you guys, but I don't know anybody who loves Office macros. <laughs> so, <laughs> so the fact that this is the number two reason why Google is better than AWS again, a bit of a stretch. Uh, same reason as the last one. It's a bit of a corporate shill thing. It's it's kind of a Me Too feature to uh, Office. I've used App Scripts, but they've been around for a very long time. I use it to, to build some integrations with Google Sheets. So, I mean, again, it's not GCP. But, I mean, it's that's a reason why Google is better than AWS, not, not GCP. So I'll be yeah, sorry. Exactly. I, I was splitting a hair that doesn't exist, really. Uh, the next one is uh, Google App Sheet, uh, which is an acquisition they just did in January. It's not fully integrated into the Google world, but is definitely going to be their no-code solution. Uh, so that one seems a bit premature. I mean, it might be awesome because there is no competitor on that on the AWS side today. Um, so that's a little weird. Mm. But you know how I feel about no-code solutions. So I think this 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 alone already like you know anchors me to, against the author of this article. <laughs> so I'm like, oh, yeah, this really. is what you, this is one of the things you like. Okay. We we can speak about the author of the article uh, after the thirteen things are done. 
The, uh, the next one is the Healthcare API. This is the uh, FUR-compliant uh, API for healthcare. This was announced not that long ago, but, you know, again, Amazon has some healthcare stuff, but not a lot. It's a bit of a poor poor showing from AWS in this one, so I, I guess I give this point to uh, Google. I mean, if yeah. you consider something announced a couple weeks ago, it was, you know, cutting edge. And then, I, you know... <sighs> I'm sorry, go ahead. No, I, I think uh, all the vertical-based solutions to make use leveraging the... Um, platforms for vertical use cases is going to be a huge differentiator in the years to come. Oh, for sure. And then, uh, you know, the one that everyone talks about Google's amazing auth is Kubernetes. And so I suspected to see Kubernetes in the list. Uh, But what I found instead was Anthos. Google Anthos makes them better than AWS. What do you think about that one, Jonathan? I think if you have the money to burn, uh, it's nice to have a hybrid solution. Yeah, I wouldn't know. I can't afford to test it. <laughs> I still don't know. I'm dying to test it. Can't wait till I can afford it to try it. It's like a Netflix subscription. We got to find someone who has one and just like piggyback on it. Yeah. There you go. Yeah, definitely. That's the way to go. I yeah. mean, same thing with Outpost. I like to find somebody who has an Outpost so I can play with it. I want to go mm. touch it in the data center. Once we can socially, well, I, I mean, I'm socially distancing from my Outpost right now, but when I can't, I can socially not distance. I will do with outposts uh the next one is uh firebase firebase i give this one to you it's a it's a decent database it's portable all the way down to mobile devices uh it's available to you in the cloud it enables a bunch of different features and capabilities uh which also leads into his next one which is embedded machine learning with bigquery and firebase i I give them both of those that's those are solid uh i would like to see amazon maybe someday have a firebase type solution for managing uh simple db kind of stuff on the device but they don't have it today so we'll give this one to google and it's where it starts to get a little, little confusing between uh, is this a you know Google versus AWS GCP? You know these are definitely GCP features, but you know compared to the other ones which weren't, I'm confused. Yeah, and so this is where I, I really start to lose him uh, from here on out. So we've we've gotten through six of them, I think, and we have a couple more to go here. But uh, the next one is G Suite integration. So this is the ability that you can use your G Suite login to get into GCP. Now some people say that's a bastion of productivity that I don't have to have multiple things. Where I see it as potentially a security violation waiting to happen because of uh, incorrectly set up G Suite apps uh, with too much access to GCP. So you know, you call it what you want to call it. I it's a bit of a challenge for me to go with this one, uh, oh, but you know, yes, it is fully integrated and it uses the same UI paradigms and the same concepts. So if you know G Suite, uh, you will most likely be able to figure out Google Cloud. But do they, do they present that as a single sign-on type solution using Google as the, the Google account as the authorizer? Yes, they do. Okay, well, that's fine. I'd, I'd let them win that because I, I think actually they, uh, at least they don't have a huge marketplace like Amazon do where your, your root account for your AWS account can actually go buy things using your corporate corporate credit card for, off the Amazon store. Yeah, but once you get, if you're talking IAM versus IAM, once you get past authentication and you start getting into permissions, my goodness, Google is uh, unintuitive. You know, up until you said unintuitive, I had no idea which way you were going to go on that because I think that I think in some ways I am in Google is is really nicely laid out. It's it's a challenge to to grok what they expect you to do with all the pull down lists and all the different um, profiles and roles. It's pretty yeah. Yeah. Do you think it's unintuitive because we haven't used it very much, or I mean, is it just a thing I don't know. I mean, the ways of working? That's a good question. Could be old dog, new tricks. I didn't have that problem learning Amazon. I am. So maybe it's just me. Maybe it's your unlearning of AWS IAM that causes you to struggle with the much better, simpler way that doesn't seem as powerful because it's been made better. I don't know. I don't think so. I think I'm right. (laughs) (laughs) To be fair, I created a GCP uh, project so I could try and transcribe the, the podcast. Using using the GCP tools, and I I agree. Like the drop down is like, well, what permissions do you want to give this thing? Like, um, I have no idea. <laughs> <laughs> yes, <laughs> and as much as the AWS documentation kind of sucks, at least it exists in some form that is searchable easily. That's true. Uh, well, so then then he really loses me on the next one. Uh, so he says the last time we looked at the documentation, AWS EC2 instances maxed out at ninety six vCPUs. Now. Oof. Uh, you know, so I was curious. I was like, I think that's wrong. So I went to instances.info and I sorted by vCPUs. And, and lo and behold, there's two instances 
that are 128 vCPUs available to me, as well as there's these monster U instances, I think we talked about on the show previously, that have 448 CPUs all in the metal class. So I don't know last time you checked that pricing. I mean, I will I'll give, maybe give them a pass on this one just because, you know, the AWS instance sizing documentation on their website is pretty awful. And so maybe he just missed them and you, you know, just go to easy 2 instances info, which every Amazon person does because it's the only sane way to do this. Uh, you get what answers you want. Uh, but yeah, just it's a pretty big swing and a miss on that one. Uh, as well as he said, you know, the maximum amount of memory uh, you can get on GCP is 11, uh, basically 12 uh, terabytes of RAM, which AWS also has much larger instance sizes for memory. Just overall wrong. So wrong. Wrong. Uh, <laughs> the next one is uh, custom cloud machines. And so this is the ability to uh, basically choose the number of CPUs that you'd like to have allocated to your VM and the amount of memory. So if you want to do you know, say six CPUs versus one of Amazon's predefined sizes, he thinks this is overly a, overall a win. Um, and, and, you know, sometimes maybe it is licensing benefits to it. There's a couple of things. At the end of the day, I think this is, this is a pretty small benefit. I would say licensing doesn't really count because it, at least with AWS, you can mask out CPUs and, and you can provision an instance that has 16 and then hide four of them, let's say. If yeah, you only you're wanted to license for the you're not using on Amazon. That's the problem. You're paying Amazon for it, but you're not paying Oracle for it, and you're not paying Microsoft for it for the licensing for their database solutions. But but at the same time, like I, I think, I think uh, vertical scale isn't really in the interests of the cloud model. You want exactly. to scale horizontally, and so so who cares if you can provision a machine that's got 112 CPUs? Why not provision 20 that have got like four each and scale more flexibly? Yep, scale out. And sure, I guess there's some workloads where you need massive CPUs. You need you know these huge NUMA architectures for machine learning. But yeah, not everyone's doing that. I think most adopters of the cloud aren't going to the cloud for machine learning right now. So his next one is a, a premium network. And so when I thought he said this, I thought to myself, well, he's talking about just how superior the Google network is in general, which I would give him. But no, no, no. He's calling out the fact that they have a premium network that I can now pay for to get the special fast lane access to Google. Uh, you know, that's a bit of a stretch. I, I mean, the Google network is amazing without premium network. And the premium network gives you some more guarantees and some more other, you know, in redundancies and your pathing that is great. But, you know, for, I wish Amazon had a feature like that. But, you know, Google wins on this one without the premium network, just to be perfectly honest. Can, can we also throw in there the superior way Google handles VPC uh, configurations? That's fair. Yep, there's so many, so many things he could have said of networking that yeah. would have been better. The premium yeah. network. I think that's good. Google's model is they they give you something, they make something easy, and then they charge you for it. <laughs> so they have networking, and they make it better, and then they charge you for the for the top tier. They've, they've done it for so many different products. Yeah, but but even there, unlike Azure, their default is pretty good. Where. <laughs> I can't necessarily have the same thing with Azure's model where their default is good enough. It's, you know, you feel the pain when you don't go for those premium ultra tiers. The, uh, the next one is the uh, preemptible instance. Uh, and this one, this one's a bit of a struggle uh, for me because his argument is that, you know, you don't have to bid for it. Uh, it's not an auction like the spot market is. And you just say, I want this instance and it'll disappear when Google needs it. And it'll come back when I don't, when, you know, when Google doesn't need it. Um, you know, I feel like that's actually a bit of a, ch- of a challenge because I don't know when it's going to die. Amazon has a great marketplace that tells you the bidding of what the current pricing is, what the changes are. You can bid at the list rack rate price and that pretty much always protects you to get the cheapest price all the time where you're paying for the Google price regardless of if they have, you know, spare, even more spare capacity, you could get a cheaper price. You're paying that preemptible price. There's no negotiation on it. I mean, I, I won a pointless Twitter competition today, which was uh, a guy asking what, what's the equivalent of uh, like an IRQ interrupt for cloud. And my answer was uh, the basically spot because you can you can have a, a cheap running workload, and if somebody else comes along, more important, which in the cloud world is who has more money, they can t- they can take the instance off you and run their workload. You can hibernate your work and you can resume it later. AWS supports hibernation and resuming. 
GCP does not, but what, but what they do is they, they have managed instance groups and they have persistent disks. So you can literally, your, your app can be aware of this stuff and it can save all its data to disk right as, as it gets a message, it's going to get shut down and then load up again the next time and just resume as normal. So I, I think they're kind of equivalent, really. I, I don't know that the price really makes that, that much difference. It's nice to get more of a saving if you can get more of a saving, but is that really the driver for, you know, uh, is the tenth of a penny really the driver for using Spot over anything else? Yeah, I mean, I, I do feel like this was a bit of a push, but it, you know, if you're going to fight with me on the on the auction pricing, that's not where I'm going to. You know. No, no, and in a way, I, I think the entire article is written from a perspective of uh, lack of technical depth in the in the solutions. I mean, prims, for instance, is sure they have they they are they they equivalent almost. Yes, I'm sure they are. Do you see a feature that might be? more useful to you in GCP? Yeah, for a particular use case. But I think a lot of these things are just interpretations. Um, uh, if you look at some of the other guys, some, of the, some of the articles written by the same man, um, like just the, the one he published previously, this was why AWS is better than GCP and Azure. So it's just, mm-hmm. for, the, for, for, the, for the most part, kind of uh, a bit clickbaity. He, he writes for Wired. He writes for the New York Times, I think. But, but ultimately, I mean, he's just, he's just pushing out technical fluff. You're right. However, the next one, the last one, I will totally give him. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yes. Yes. The final one being sustained use discounts. I fully agree with him. This is a fantastic feature that GCP has, where if you use the instance for a certain number of days in a month, the price just automatically drops down for you, which is uh, basically they're assuming you're going to keep it running for the rest of the month since you get that savings. Anywhere from 10% uh, up to as much as thirty percent. So there you go. That's a pretty great deal, uh, and I do wish that existed in AWS for sure. So yeah, so that's a that's the thirteen reasons why Google's better than uh, AWS. Uh, again, I, I think there's maybe four, <laughs> maybe five that are yeah. legitimately better things. Uh, and I think there's a lot of AWS stuff that he doesn't even talk about that makes it better than Google. Uh, but you know, again, it's it's the right solution for your workload. I think there's lots of different options. Google's a great choice for the right workloads. AWS is, Azure is in some places, and even Oracle, uh, if you owe them millions of dollars, uh, might be a great solution to you to get out of that problem. So there you go. All right. Well, that was fun. Uh, let's move on to new news for this week. Uh, AWS is introducing the new CDK for Kubernetes. Uh, this is a new software development framework and open source project for defining Kubernetes applications using code. Uh, do note this is an alpha. Uh, they call this the CDK8S, or CD Kubernetes, which is a little weird. Uh, it makes it easy to manage your system the same way you do CDK for CloudFormation, using the same tools, techniques, and workflows you use in your IDE. It generates pure uh, Kubernetes YAML, so you can use it to define applications for any Kubernetes cluster running anywhere, on-prem, uh, in Google, or in AWS. And you can use Python or TypeScript uh, to write your CDK8S uh, code. So it's a pretty cool feature. Nice. Well, you know, just as the, com- the uh, conversation about how to pronounce cubecuddle went for years, I'm going to say now that's CD cats. I was CD CD Kates uh, all the way. Yeah, that's that's what I say. I still want to know why it's not just K nine. <laughs> it's, it's also really annoying to type CD K eight S. It's it's hard to type as I typed yeah. it multiple times. The tongue twister for the fingers. Yeah, I'm, I'm a I'm a fan of CDK insofar as that I I, I like writing. Python to generate CloudFormation for me, but uh, I want to use the CloudFormation and when I actually deploy, when I'm deploying, I want to deploy from the CloudFormation that's generated. I don't want to do the hey, let's just run this Python and have it deploy the thing that it thinks I want. I want a chance to validate what it's going to generate in between. And if that's, you know, we, we talked to Ben Kehoe about his opinions on this and, you know, he's very active on Twitter, very vocal on Twitter about how he doesn't think that CDK is as declarative as it should be for the purpose. And I, I kind of agree with them on that. So this is great for not having to write YAML by hand for sure. Yeah, I think there's a big difference there. For me, um, you know, I don't want to, you know, the Pulumi model or, you know, just using like, you know, Python and Boto3 directly to call APIs like that is uh, an abstraction. It's not really an abstraction, but it's it's so hard to get predictive results in that scenario. And so having something you know the you know the, the the flip side of that is you know a million YAML files for your Kubernetes services and and that's annoying as well. Like trying to figure out which one, you know, trying to figure out a lot of it's boilerplate, um, and so you're doing the same thing over and over and over again. So I, I like this mix where you can automatically generate it, but it's still very declarative. You know, the, the configuration is is set, and then you can derive changes based on that for you know upgrades and, 
I like this model. And I like, you know, using these types of things in pipelines. And, you know, so maybe you don't have to do the full, if you're a developer, the full YAML, you know, set of documents. You can actually just run it through a program that will do a lot of it for you. And you can host that centrally. Yeah. And presumably, you know, we've we've learned that there are some best practice patterns along the way for all kinds of different technologies. Presumably something like this will help people generate best practice patterns for deploying things of a certain type on Kubernetes as well. Even if it's not best practice, at least it'll be the same, right? Yeah. Be standard. Yep. Standard really cool practice, <laughs> even if not good <laughs> practice. Uh, the uh, easy to instance connect feature is now going to support attribute-based access control. Uh, this is, of course, the way to use uh, SSH to... Uh, or SSH into an EC2 host using IAM. Uh, this allows you to basically specify that you have the right to uh, SSH into the box uh, without having to pass around those lovely, lovely keys to all your users. Uh, this is a great way to simplify the access to the system. And I'm really glad to see this fine-grained access control so you don't have to enable all EC2 instances. I can just say the ones that have a specific tag or specific naming convention or some other parameter that I'm using that the ABAC supports. This is really great. Well, the other thing is not just tags on the resources, it's also tags on the users. And so you can tag some users as having certain access to, to perform some operations and other, other users access to perform different operations. So you could have some people read only and some people can restart services. Some people can assume root, but most people can't. That kind of thing. So it's, it's awesome. It's, it's a great product. Yeah, it's super nice to see us get away from PEM files and passing around keys that aren't really needed. Although it is fun when we do when I do my uh, tech screens for new engineers watching some people uh, struggle with their permissions on their pen file. Your <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> message your 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 permissions yeah. are too open and the first thing to do is chmod seven seven seven. Like that's more open, not less open. Other way around. <laughs> oh yeah. That's yeah. going the wrong way. It even tell it even tells you in the warning message which is set it to, so it'll be stopping it. Yeah, <laughs> it's the best test ever. I watch to see who reads the warning, me- who reads the error message. It's awesome. Oh, it's so ingrained. I actually have it in my Bash script. I have a little fixer that just I just type in two little letters and the key file and it fixes it for me. Yeah. I actually do the hardcore way and just in the SSH config file, just tell it to ignore permissions. Seriously, I'm trying to put together a list of questions to exclude candidates and. You know, dumb things like what port does a HTTP run on and things like that uh, can exclude candidates really early. It's something that recruiters can do before we do proper tech screens or code challenges or even bring people in for interviews. And so, you know, the chmod seven 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 money key file would definitely be in the class of you're out. You're out. <laughs> yeah. You are off the island. <laughs> <laughs> hey, everyone. Jonathan here. I just wanted to take a minute to thank the cloud consulting gurus at Foghorn for helping make the cloud pod possible. These folks truly get it. Cloud consulting experts since 2008, they are premier tier partners with AWS, Google Cloud Platform Silver, and Microsoft Azure partners. From multi-cloud to containers to moving full production workloads to the cloud under the tightest compliance, Foghorn's team of full-stack cloud engineers have been there, done that, gotten the t-shirt, and are ready to share their experience with you. If you're in the market for some talent to supplement your team, visit www.fogops.io slash the cloud pod. www.fogops.io slash the cloud pod. Foghorn, the promise of cloud delivered. AWS Systems Manager is now enhancing the support for State Manager resources in AWS CloudFormation. Uh, this allows you to use the State Manager features uh, to check state of a process or a different command uh, before your CloudFormation executes. Uh, it's all part of the Systems Manager system uh, and is available to you today. Uh, one of the examples they gave us for how to use this is uh, you can now create Amazon CloudFormation templates to deploy agents onto your EC2 instances more safely by limiting how many instances you deploy to uh, before they start failing. And if it starts failing at a certain percentage, you can roll back entire change in CloudFormation or keep pushing through. It's a really nice uh, way to use State Manager in your CloudFormation deployment. It's a neat feature. I just really wish they named all these things something else because it is it yeah. was really difficult to read through and research this. And I'm like, I think I like this. I think I'm so wrapped up around the fact that I, I am I talking about the same thing? Is this finding the documentation for it is difficult? Like, uh, it's just a nightmare. But it is cool. Yeah, I really, the whole SSM naming convention is uh, leaves a lot to be desired in general. So hopefully someday they'll fix that. I really want them to close the loop, though, because State Manager is great in itself. 
for ensuring that things are the way you want them to be. And CloudFormation with its drift detection is good in itself for making sure that things are the way CloudFormation thinks they're supposed to be. But what I want is for state managers to look at what CloudFormation is about to do and stop it if it's going to do something that is not the way I want it to be. And that's still missing. Very true. Drop the mic. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Amazon uh, Code Guru has a couple of updates here, which, uh, again, talk about bad naming. There's the Code Guru Profiler versus the Code Guru Reviewer. Uh, they are two different things that are, have the same name. So there you go. Uh, but the first one is the uh, Code Viewer, or sorry, Code Guru Profiler. Uh, they've added the ability to run this as a native Java agent uh, so that you can now run this inside your code without having to recompile your code to include the Code Guru uh, capabilities. Uh, this is a great way to now get access to it, uh, to be able to troubleshoot it without having to do anything complicated, uh, which is a great way to say if it's even worth your time uh, to embed <laughs> the profiler into your Java code before you spend that time refactoring. And then the, uh, the second one here is a Code Guru reviewer uh, now supports Bitbucket. Uh, Bitbucket, of course, is Atlassian's uh, tool for Git, uh, just like GitHub or GitLab. Uh, and now you can integrate this directly into CodeGuru and pay for all those lines of code that you want analyzed and scanned. I was waiting for the dig. I knew it was coming. <laughs> You're muted, Jonathan. Is he talking? He was talking. Yeah. I love it. At least we have video now. And that's all I have to say about Vietnam. <laughs> <laughs> No, just say it's at least they they're willing to support other source code repos, and they're not just relying on their own source code repo for the service. I mean, yeah, you you probably could cover ninety percent of the market with just covering yours and GitHub. Yeah, <laughs> so it's nice that they're covering some of these other use cases. I've been running into Bitbucket a lot recently. Is that because everyone ran to it after GitHub got bought by Microsoft, or just, just companies you're dealing with are using it more? Very possible, yeah. That, yeah, I, I was surprised when all of a sudden I was getting invites to Bitbucket accounts. It's not a bad product, I and mean, its integration into Jira and Confluence makes it really powerful. But um, it has some limitations, in my opinion, compared to GitLab or GitHub. But you know, for some teams and some companies, that integration is really important. Yeah, yeah. I thought that I thought the tool itself, the, the repo portion, is pretty cool. Um, the pipeline. Uh, capabilities are pretty limited. That's where it was like, oof, this is not going to be a long-term solution. Uh, Amazon Cloud Trail Console has been simplified uh, with new trail creation and management GUIs. Uh, this includes all of the Cloud Trail features, including documentation, uh, pricing alongside uh, enabling CloudTrail so you know it's going to cost you before you do it, as well as the new CloudTrail Insights dashboards. Uh, I did go use this today because I was curious about the new UI paradigm, and I turned it on, and I realized they just stole the S3 one, so it's not oh. super intuitive. Yeah. Do you have to type in, like, I really want to delete this CloudTrail, just like you do in S3, if you want to get real thing? <laughs> I, I, you know, I didn't try to delete the cloud trail, but now I have something to do after the podcast. So. Yeah, yeah, for sure. <laughs> I don't know. I, I feel like cloud trail should be like, an on or off thing, like default off because they don't want to cost you money, but you should be able to go in there and press a single button and have it start logging to an S3 bucket that they create for you with read-only permissions and you can query the thing from S3 or you can query it with an API read-only. I mean, they, they, support, they support that in, 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 a, in a S3, really, like the, the, the whole worm objects and everything else. So they, they basically they basically do that with a new UI. It is that simple. So it's it's... One screen where you're basically inputting in, uh, you know, what do you want to name the trail? What bucket do you want to give it? Do you want us to create the bucket or do you want to use an existing bucket? And you just give it the bucket name or prefix. And then it's just a matter of specifying a couple different event types you want. If you want uh, data events plus cloud trail events plus uh, one other one other type that they've added recently. It, and then really you hit enter and it's done. And the nice thing about CloudTrail now too is that even if you don't have CloudTrail enabled, um, they do keep a record of at least the last few days. So you see everything that's in CloudTrails, even if you don't have it enabled uh, for the first couple of days. And also when you use this new wizard, it enables it globally, which is super helpful. So no no more do you have to specify, like, you know, do you want this for all regions or just this region? And, you know, do you want to capture global, you know, global permissions like used to in the good old it, days? So it, does, it gives you those choices. You can definitely break it down if you want to. Uh, but it's as simple as I want all the regions or I don't. And it just takes care of it. So super handy. Nice. Uh, ECS uh, is now supporting environment files to store environment variables for containers using EC2 launch type. Uh, this simplifies configuration of environment variables by editing or referencing centrally located files, like from S3, instead of manual edits to environment variables as key value pairs across all your containers. Uh, Large-scale apps consisting of different types of containers need extensive configuration to ensure their workloads run as expected. And this is especially important after build and test phases and when moving the workload across environments. Uh, 
again, this is a great way to avoid maintaining hard-coded variables and task definitions, which are error-prone and not scalable for large-scale applications. I'll turn this over to Ryan, our container expert. For yes. Yeah. I love this feature. I, I, I've seen two patterns previously for ECS, and that was either 11 billion environment variables as part of your task definition or baking everything into your image and then just running logic in your entry point to, to load up your configuration options. Neither one is great, right? You can make it work, but it's it's clunky and making changes and promotion through environments is is nightmarish. And so this makes everything much more simple. You can use very simple logic um, to map to declarative files, and then you can update those files independently of your test definition. Um, and so that is uh, fantastic for for promotion of containers through environments. And I, I started using this immediately in a couple of the applications they use um, just because it was so much simpler. And I've always, it was one of those things that they released it and I I was annoyed so long by the previous configuration that it was like, must fix, must fix now. So, I mean, I, I get how environment variables work if you if you declare a, a bunch of those. How how are the um, attributes that you define in the file in S three presented to the application in the container? So it's 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 still an environment variable. It's so it's the equivalent of the loading environment variables in the Docker from file. So there's a there's a Docker flag that you can pass saying instead of you know minus e environment key value pair, you can say just read from the file. Of key value pairs. Oh, awesome, awesome. I mean, I guess yeah. you, you could you could already have rolled your own solution with S three. I don't think many mm-hmm. people many people did do that exact same thing, but that's really nice. The, the place they've inserted this into the platform is really nice. So it is really difficult because you're not in ECS. You're not really executing Docker directly, right? The ECS agent is executing it for you. So rolling your own solution, while possible, but it's it's not at the not where you want it, right? Which is where you're when you're invoking that container. Yeah, I guess, I guess it becomes much more of an application concern at that point to to to, to maintain the, those those inputs. Yep. Cool. And then the other container news this week is uh, EKS has announced their best practices guide for security. Uh, EKS now makes it easier to implement security best level practices for Kubernetes on AWS. Uh, EKS provides secure managed Kubernetes clusters by default, uh, but you still need to ensure that you configure the nodes and applications you run as part of the cluster uh, to ensure a secure implementation. Uh, the guide covers a broad range of topics, including pod security, networking security, incident response, and compliance in your Kubernetes environment, uh, which is great. Yeah, these are hard challenges. Um, and because Kubernetes, well, is you know taking over the world by storm, it's still a lot of people are still gaining familiarity with it. And so it's I haven't seen a whole lot of Kubernetes clusters that have that uh, I feel are very secure, well set up, right? Because it's just not that easy to do. There's so many things that you've got to configure and there's just a lot of different ways into the into the system and into the service. And it's very difficult for a centralized team to manage. So anything where, you know, a large entity that has a lot of experience um, can offer their expertise and offer advice to people who are just getting started. It's fantastic. I love it. Yeah, we see a lot of companies who have, you know, Really green resources, uh, learning Kubernetes, and then responsible for setting it up, and that definitely gives you a lot of rope to hang yourself with. Yeah, the uh, it'd be nice though if you know that new CDK for Kubernetes announcement maybe had some patterns to do this for me. Yeah, <laughs> oh, libraries. That exercise is left for the reader. I think is the uh, is the phrase that I like to use. <laughs> <laughs> All right, moving on to our friends up at Azure. Uh, Microsoft has won a multi-year cloud deal, an AI deal with FedEx uh, to improve package deliveries. Uh, this partnership is a multi-year partnership uh, which the logistics giants will use Microsoft Azure cloud services to build a machine learning powered platform for predicting package delays. Uh, the new platform is called FedEx Surround uh, and is expected to be the first of several new offerings that will emerge from the collaboration between Azure and FedEx. Uh, this is targeted at commercial shippers, such as manufacturers that use FedEx networks to ferry goods to retailers, and we use Azure AI services to predict potential delivery delays. Uh, for example, a home appliance maker, for instance, could receive an alert that a truck carrying refrigerators is at risk of getting delayed due to a traffic jam or snowstorm, and supply managers could then redirect that truck uh, in advance to a more favorable route that won't be delayed. 
Uh, their goal is to provide near real-time insights in the zip code level, uh, and the deal is a large one for Microsoft Azure and may turn out to be a highly lucrative depending on how extensively FedEx deploys surround across this global delivery network. Of course, FedEx severed ties with Amazon.com last year in a very public statement uh, where they were very angry with uh, Amazon for building their own delivery network. Yeah, no surprise here, huh? Yeah, shocker, shocker, I tell you. I mean, building, building AI models of things is, is all great, but... This just doesn't excite me. I mean, do they? Who are they protecting here? Are they protecting the consumer? They're protecting themselves. Are they? Are they going to say, "Well, we're not going to uh, offer you a price for a three three day shipping, and then have to refund you because we think the model says it might take five days"? Or is it really about, "Hey, uh, we can definitely get yourself there in three days because the model says there's going to be a hurricane in uh, in, in Kentucky on this day"? Like, I, I don't know. I just. I wonder if this is just a marketing thing. Hey, look, we're not with AWS anymore. We're with Microsoft versus the technology actually being of some meaningful financial use at the end of the day. I think just information, like if you're waiting on a package or tracking a package, like there's a lot of unknowns. And so these types of systems, while, you know, the dubious whether or not they'll completely reroute against, you know, every error, but it's, I think a lot of it will just be providing visibility on where stuff is and how long it'll take to get there. Yeah, I mean, think about the interstate system in the US. Like, there are a few routes, really. There are a few choices east to west, and there are a few choices north to south in various places. So, like, if there was a serious, serious event, then sure, you may be able to move the package a different way or go by air at your expense or do something else like that. But really, I, I don't see this being what they think it's going to be, or at least what, what they say it's going to be. I think it's just fluff. Well, then a, a lot of AI meets that description, right? It's yeah. I don't know. It's just a short model. I'm impressed. I mean, the thing the truth of the matter is anybody who's doing logistics and supply chain, it's, it's a very specialized business with a lot of know-how and knowledge that comes into play. And, I once worked for a three-letter company in the Middle East, and uh, the most you know highly paid people were the logistics people who were coordinating shipments of, of ships and trucks and containers around the globe. Um, it, you know, so I I see why this is a tool and, and case capabilities could be really beneficial to that market. Uh, but yeah, I agree with you, Jonathan. I'm not super super excited about it, but I get it for sure. Right? But I mean, uh, the more efficient you get your supply chain, the less inventory you have to carry. I mean, there's tons of advantages to um, having degrees of confidence, higher degrees of confidence of when you're going to have things at certain locations. Yeah, I mean, I guess you replace package deliveries with munitions, food supplies for the military, and you replace FedEx with the uh, the military. Maybe there's some people interested in this kind of model to improve the supply chain in uh, in the war zones. Jedi, Jedi, go back to the Jedi section. <laughs> Well, Microsoft Build, like I mentioned in the beginning of the show, uh, was this week, and they announced a ton of things. Uh, we'll talk on some of them and skip over most, uh, just to be perfectly fair. Uh, the first one, uh, you know, they did announce uh, an update to Azure Synapse Link. Uh, this originally was announced for Cosmos DB. Uh, this allowed you to connect your analytics tools to not only your operational database, but also to your Cosmos DB uh, to do real-time uh, analytics. Uh, they're now making that available to all uh, data operation systems, so SQL Server, Oracle, etc., that'll all be available to you through the Synapse link sometime later this year. Uh, as well as they've enhanced the ability to create Microsoft Teams apps and capabilities of Visual Studio and Visual Studio Code. Uh, they've announced a new Fluid framework, which is very similar to that Google uh, thing we mentioned earlier about being able to move objects between Google Web Apps. Uh, and then a bunch of new responsible ML tools for Azure Machine Learning and enhanced uh, open source toolkits to help customers deploy AI models more responsibly by improving model interoperability, reducing unfairness while ensuring data privacy and confidentiality. Uh, there's a new project reunion coming, which is a new version of the evolving Windows developer platform to make it easier to integrate Windows 32 and UWT, UWP APIs uh, to build great apps, and this is going to be in their new Windows UI definition, uh, which will probably drive all of the terrible Windows UIs for the next 20 years, as the .NET framework did back in 2002. So I look forward to that. <laughs> they did buy a uh, company called Soft Automotive uh, for low-code robotic process automation, or RPA. Uh, this is very similar to some of the RoboMaker stuff that Amazon has. Uh, and then they announced a new AI supercomputer built in Azure, uh, developed in collaboration with OpenAI, which I have some stats on if you're curious about. Uh, how many petaflops it does. It's 
pretty cool. And then the, the most interesting announcement actually is the last one, uh, which is the Microsoft Cloud for Healthcare, uh, which is the first industry-specific cloud offering which brings together capabilities for customers and partners to enrich patient engagement, connect caregiving teams, and improve collaboration, decision-making, and operational efficiencies. Uh, Microsoft Cloud for Healthcare will support capabilities such as the new bookings app and the Teams, uh, now generally available to help schedule, manage, and conduct business to consumer virtual appointments. Uh, and this is all with HIPAA compliance and high trust certification. Uh, so this is really an interesting play from the perspective of if you take your cloud services and then you package them into a healthcare offering or into a fintech offering or into a you know a big data offering, uh, and you market that way, you actually can potentially build a really large customer base just based on the specialization of your current offering, making it just a little bit more specialized uh, can really drive a lot of really interesting business propositions. Uh, so I'm curious to see how. Microsoft, you know, does on cloud for healthcare what they announced for it in the future, as well as where this eventually goes with maybe other sectors as well. That use case for healthcare was a little uh, uninspiring, but uh, going that direction is a is a great start. I think it's one thing that AWS are missing, right? Is showing people how you can take combinations of their services and turn it into something that's of value for their particular industry. Um, and so, I mean, really, the cloud for healthcare from Microsoft is is not really much more than. Um, you know, enhancement to teams to support calendaring and booking resources. They're obviously taking advantage of the current climate of uh, people working at home and not not going to doctors' offices and things like that. But it's a marketing thing, and and they're going to be very successful by marketing this way. And I think everybody else should listen and do the same thing and put together packages. You know, white paper is one thing, but it's not the same as saying, "Hey, look, we've got this cloud offering for for healthcare. We've got this cloud offering for banks or anything else." Yeah, but like bookings app, bookings app is the most generic horizontal service to focus on a vertical. And then with the only caveat being, okay, it's HIPAA compliant, high trust certified versus, you know, APIs that help you access genomic data or like real higher level services focused at healthcare and um, life sciences companies. So it's a good step in the right direction, but I see so much room. This is like the two-bit computer, I feel like. <laughs> well, talking about not a two-bit computer, let's talk about that open AI computer, because it's cool. Yeah, oh, uh, that was a good segue. It was, thank you. Yeah. Uh, so a year ago, we and then we talked about it here on the show, Microsoft invested uh, $1 billion uh, into OpenAI to jointly develop new technologies for the Azure Cloud platform and to further extend large-scale AI capabilities that deliver on the promise of artificial general intelligence. In exchange, OpenAI agreed to license some of its intellectual property to Microsoft, which they will commercialize and sell to partners and use to train and run AI models on Azure. Uh, the first release of the partnership, of course, it was unveiled at Build, and this is the new supercomputer that was built for OpenAI on Azure. Microsoft claims as the fifth most powerful machine in the world, uh, and compared with the top 500, this would put it between China's uh, Tiane 2A and ahead of Texas Advanced Frontera, meaning it can perform somewhere between 38.7 and 100.7 quadrillion floating point operations per second, or petaflops at peak. Uh, the Azure-hosted OpenAI co-design machine contains over 285,000 processor cores, 10,000 graphics cards, and 400 gigabits per second of connectivity for each graphics card server. Uh, and it was designed to train a single massive AI model, uh, which is a model that is learned from ingesting billions of pages from text, from self-published books, instruction manuals, history lessons, human resource guidelines, and other publicly available works. And there's a quote here from OpenAI CEO Sam Altman. Uh, As we've learned more and more about what we need and different, different limits of all the components that make up a supercomputer, we were really able to say, if we could design our dream system, what would it look like? And then Microsoft was able to build it. We are saying that the large-scale systems are an important component in training more powerful models. Uh, so this is just the beginning of a lot of new enhancements and capabilities. The article goes into a lot more details about um, how we drive uh, different solutions like you know, autoresponders and email, and like you know, those little pops that say, hey, it looks like maybe you want to respond, hey, thanks for emailing, or you know, the different tips and tricks they give you. Uh, that's all available to you via this type of enabling of AI. That's an amazing, amazing computer. And I would just have to say the Skynet funding bill is passed. The system goes online August 4th, 1997. Human decisions are removed from strategic defense. <laughs> I read these and I, I realize that I just need to start doing cooler stuff because I don't think that I really need a, this computer to you know, monitor how many uh, you know, container clusters I have at what versions of Docker. But I, I need to develop a different workload, so I need several, several petaflops. I, I can't even fathom the 
I don't use it with Fathom lightly. In fact, I think it's probably the first time I've ever used it with Fathom. I can't even fathom the possible use cases for a system of that size. Tracking encryption keys, uh, you know, Bitcoin mining, building weather models, that kind of stuff. But, but, but really, I mean, the, the possibilities with a system of that, that size are just insane. When they say Azure hosted, these aren't actually all just virtual resources from the Azure cloud, right? This is a this is custom hardware. 400 gigabits per second of connectivity for each gra- graphics card server. Yeah. How do you even get 400 gigabits? I mean, I've seen like, I've seen like 40 gig uh, fiber network interfaces, but I've never seen a system that could support 10 of those. <laughs> yeah, so is this really the Azure that we have access to? I mean, you don't have access to this computer directly, but the outcomes of this system and the models that it's building for you are available to you via Azure. Kind of wonder if this is uh, some some like retroactive justification for uh, why Azure got the Jedi contract and AWS did not. Yeah, I mean, this was announced last year that they were going to work on this. So yeah, but now they've delivered it, and <laughs> it's not vaporware anymore. It's not Sage making. I know what we should do. We should use this to train and win the Deep Racer League. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> That's actually, that's actually the troll that I would love to see is Google or Azure basically train a deep racer model and then have their person win. And at the very end, you know, basically announce, I used Azure to do it. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. We should do it. We, we should <laughs> show up wearing like Microsoft t-shirts, to get, you know, a whole bunch of sponsorships. It's kind of like dystopian though. A hundred years, 200 years in the future. And you know, the big cloud providers are competing to the death, you know, <laughs> the, the AI, AI powered robots are, uh, are fighting and winning wars for us. That's cool. <laughs> uh, anything else you guys are uh, curious about from Azure Build uh, and what they also announced? I mean, there's all kinds of great stuff, uh, new Blazor frameworks and .NET previews for .50. I mean, there, a lot of stuff here at developers, stuff to check out. We're not going to cover all that here, but anything that uh, struck your, your fancy from everything I talked about? No new versions of Silverlight coming out? No, 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 I didn't no. see that. Okay. I think it was just nice to, to, to see the admission that the stance they've taken on open source over the years was wrong and that they realized that the path, the best path forwards for everybody is, um, is open source technology. Yeah, and it was then, great. And I never thought I'd ever hear them say anything of the sort. If you can't beat them, join them. Yeah. Well, even the fact that they have kind of an answer to Amplify with their new Azure app service, which supports static web apps uh, from Hugo and Gatsby and Angular. That's great. Just lots of little stuff that they did that was really nice. Uh, they also piggybacked on top of GitHub, uh, uh, the GitHub event that happened a couple weeks ago, and we're talking about some of those things and how they interact with their system, including uh, some new uh, code QL uh, capability, which allows you to do semantic scanning of your, applic- of your uh, Git code. Uh, when you push it in to see if you've done something like put uh, static credentials into your code. So um, lots of really neat little things. It's hard to talk about or just you know narrow it down to one or two things, but uh, definitely check these out if you're curious what uh, Azure talked about this week. Alrighty, moving on to our friends at Google. Uh, first one up is a Google Cloud and NVIDIA partnership acceleration. Uh, the first one is that they have forthcoming support for the new NVIDIA Ampere architecture and the NVIDIA A100 Tensor Core GPU coming very soon. Uh, the new offerings will come with enhanced hardware and software capabilities to enable researchers and innovators to further advance today's most important AI and HPC applications, from conversational AI and recommender systems to weather simulation and research on climate change. Uh, this will be available to you via the Compute Engine, the Kubernetes Engine, and the Cloud AI platform. And deep learning VMs and containers will be updated to support the new capabilities out of the box, as well as TensorFlow Enterprise will be getting support for this uh, at launch. Uh, so we do sort of expect to see maybe uh, at uh, Google Cloud Next, which we'll talk about a little bit here, uh, maybe they'll mention when this goes GA or is more available. But uh, for right now, if you're interested, fill out the form in the news article, and uh, Google will be in touch with you, apparently. I, I predict, my prediction for the Cloud Next is that they will have built a uh, supercomputer using this technology to rival the Azure one, and they will now be in fifth place, pushing Azure to sixth. <laughs> if this is the prediction show, I'm woefully underprepared. <laughs> well, I was gonna, I was gonna make the reference to uh, Schrodinger's cat with the uh, uh, measuring something changes it. It's kind of ironic that we're talking about using HPC to do weather simulations research on climate change and doing the HPC. But on weather simulation research causes climate change to change. (laughs) 
I'm going to point anybody who doesn't think I'm a geek to this episode so that they could stop talking to me altogether from now on. Yeah. <laughs> what did you say? Yeah. Next up is uh, Google is announcing the new Google Cloud VMware engine. Uh, of course, last year Google announced support for VMware on top of their cloud, and then they purchased Cloud Simple, which we talked about uh, a couple weeks ago as well. And today they're announcing an integrated first-party offering with end-to-end support to migrate and run your VMware environment in Google Cloud. Uh, this VMware engine allows you to run a VMware Cloud Foundation stack, including vSphere, vCenter, NSX-T, and HCX for cloud migration in a dedicated environment on Google Cloud. Uh, to allow you to move your workloads much, much faster. There's a quote here from AJ Patel, uh, Senior Vice President and General Manager of Cloud Provider Software Business Unit at VMware. VMware and Google Cloud are working together to help power customers' multi-cloud strategies, and the new Google Cloud VMware engine will enable our mutual customers to drive digital transformation and business resiliency using the same VMware Cloud Foundation running in their data centers today. Google Cloud VMware engine enables organizations to quickly deploy their VMware environment in Google Cloud, delivering scale, agility, and access to cloud-native services while leveraging the familiarity and investment in VMware tools and training. Uh, this will be available this quarter in North Virginia and Los Angeles regions and being expanded across the globe uh, throughout the year. Mm, it's great for lift and shift, just like it is for AWS. It did the same thing, and Azure have done the same thing. But you lose out on so much of the cloud-native um, functionality. I mean, you lose the metadata endpoints, you lose uh, close integration with the IAM. There's so many, there's so many reasons not to want to do this. Um, I'd encourage people to, to not lift and shift in a system like this. and just to spend the time doing it right. Or or use this to get, you know, get out of your data center where you may have contracts which are coming up or you may have uh, hardware renewals which are coming up and you don't want to commit to five more years. Uh, you know, do this to get rid of your data center and then transform from there to cloud native. Yeah, and that's fair. I guess at least you probably don't have to commit to, you know, three years of VMware on Google, whereas you may have to do an Equinix data center. Yeah. There's new WAF capabilities in Cloud Armor for both on-premise and cloud workloads from Google. Uh, in November, they announced the beta of Cloud Armor for WAF and DDoS. And uh, now they've made it generally available to all customers, including geo-based access control, pre-configured WAF rules, a custom rules engine for layer seven filtering, and security command center integration. And now they have two new features they're announcing as well, including the general availability of Cloud Armor support for Cloud CDN, uh, which is designed to protect origin servers, as well as your hybrid deployments on-premises. Uh, and with these releases, customers are getting a native enterprise-grade WAF and DDoS mitigation service, leveraging the full scale of Google's Edge network to help defend their applications from DDoS attacks and mitigate risk from targeted application attacks. Uh, this is actually really cool, the fact that you can protect not only your cloud resources, but also your on-premise resources. Um, that's kind of a bit of a game-changer. Why do you need WAF in front of a CDN? CDN's for static assets. There's no. Well, so the CDN is one capability, as well as you also get the ability to go back to uh, your hybrid environment as well. And they tend to go together for DDoS, right? So you could Mm -hmm. uh, scale out to handle the DDoS while you're mitigating it. Well, and if your front door is through your CDN, right? So you're hitting the CDN first and you've got cache miss, you're going back to the app server. Um, You have some need for WAF there, not as much as on a a fully exposed web server, but there is some need for that there. Mm, That's fair. Yeah, but I mean, like, if you think about other solutions out there in the market, like Imperva or Akamai, um, those are the only solutions you could really use from a cloud provider that would be available for on-premise as well as AWS or Google or Azure. So this is nice to see that Google is now providing this to you as kind of part of your transition. You can move behind this cloud front or cloud armor capability and then move your workload seamlessly behind the scenes and the customers never see that change after the first change. I've noticed Cloudflare, actually, a lot more websites protected by Cloudflare's DDoS protection. And you click on a link, and then it will it will show you a Cloudflare loading screen and say verifying that you're you know not about you're not you're not going to here to 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 screw us up or anything. And I'm thinking it takes me like five or six seconds to get through this Cloudflare verification process before I get to the page. If if I just clicked the link and it took six seconds to load, I would have closed and gone off by now. So in, in a way, like it may be providing a layer of security, <laughs> but at the same time they don't need such good performing servers because I'm going to sit there and wait because I think it's doing something that's valuable to me. <laughs> yeah, really. Well, a little bit earlier, we mentioned Google Cloud Next uh, is back. So last week we talked about Google Cloud. Uh, it was dead indefinitely, and they didn't know it was going to come back. Uh, but they've rebranded it, so now they can say it's back as the Google Cloud Next on Air, uh, which will run from July 14th to September 8th with more than 200 sessions covering various topics. Now, for you, those of you who didn't count how many weeks that was, that's nine weeks of content. Uh, so unfortunately, I don't think we're going to do a prediction show 
uh, for nine weeks of content for Google Cloud Next, uh, as that just seems silly. Uh, but you know, there are definitely several things that might be coming out of this, and we'll see. Uh, there's not actually a keynote, uh, which I was surprised in any of the weeks. Uh, Thomas Kurian actually does have a talk in the very first week, I noticed. Uh, but it's just one industry insights for fintech. That's all I think he's talking about during the whole nine week session, which, you know, nine weeks, I felt like, well, that's a, that's a one way Oracle can fill the air an Oracle executive, but he only has one time talking. So who knows, <laughs> but this is available for you to register today. Uh, you can go check out the course catalog. You can sign up for classes for all nine weeks. Uh, and so that's available to you now. What do you think about this long, long, uh, session? I know Alasian did something similar with their event. Um, I've seen a couple of others do multi-week, uh, digital conferences. What do you guys think about this format? I think a nine-week conference is way better than having to get up at 5 a.m. and commuting to Moscow and central San Francisco. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> I give you that. I do give you that one. Um, you know, I, I definitely think I, I somewhat enjoy the format because I don't really want to go watch all of the videos over two or three days. That's not my workflow for these type of things, especially if I'm at home working on my other day job stuff and my, my CloudPod stuff and everything else. I'd rather be able to take advantage of the content as it kind of comes out more dripped out to me than, you know, sit down and try to watch 25 videos I care about in one week. That's not yeah. happen. And, and the other thing is, I think one of my criticisms of reInvent is that you've really got to choose months in advance what you care about watching and, and what you're prepared to, to get on YouTube three weeks later. Because, yeah. you know, you know you, because there are concurrent sessions on completely different subjects that may have interest in both, at least by spreading out over several weeks, nine weeks. I, I can watch security and I can watch cloud AI. You know, it's not, I don't have to pick and choose which I focus on. But at the same time, I, I saw somebody on Twitter make a remark about how, you know, an on-demand webinar is not a webinar anymore. It's just a video. <laughs> and so they could make all this content available in the first week if they had it. And you could just pick and choose through it the way you wanted to. The fact that they're structuring it this way is a little strange. I assume it's because they're not going to actually have the content um, immediately. Well, I would say that as a co-host of a podcast that does weekly cloud news, this is really good format. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, we have nine weeks of content starting on July 14th. Congratulations, yeah. guys. <laughs> yeah. We should take the vacation now. <laughs> I would if the beaches were open, but they're not. Mm -hmm. Well, you know, we like to give equal opportunity hate to uh, the cloud when it has a bad time. And so, uh, you know, the register uh, has been doing a really great job giving Azure crap for a long time about lack of capacity. And, you know, Azure finally got to the point they had to kind of admit that that was a problem and what they're doing to fix it. Uh, but now it's uh, apparently Google's turn uh, in a fantastic headline called TensorBlow, Data Boffins Struggle with GPU Shortage and Google Cloud, Opposition Offers to Help Out Coders. Uh, so that's a little bit interesting, but apparently if you're trying to get GPUs on your VMware or your, sorry, your instances on the cloud in Google's environment, you are struggling to do so in many cases. Uh, issues have been reported on Google's issue trackers as well as Google's group threads, dedicated GCP services. And, uh, Oracle apparently even weighed in on a Twitter complainer, uh, about the issue and pointed out that they have uh, lots of GPUs to spare. So, uh, not all is, uh, great in the Google cloud world for GPUs, but if you're using everything else, it sounds like that's still in great shape. So not quite as bad as the Azure story where you can't get anything. Uh, but definitely the cloud is struggling under the weight of uh, some of these things. They did mention in the article that there is a big uh, AI summit coming up in a few weeks that the papers are due on the 14th of June. And then, so there may be a, a very high demand for GPUs across the board uh, as these people are trying to get their models tested out for their papers to submit their submissions to their to this uh, program. Well, and as Jonathan pointed out last last week that, you know, our, all of our usage patterns are blown out of the water. So everyone's model has to be retrained with new data. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. <laughs> well, good. That is it for uh, new news this week. Uh, other than the lightning round, Peter. Azure Data Lake Storage Gen 2, PowerShell, and CLI are now generally available. The most secure PowerShell and CLI capabilities in the world. Gen 2 is the future. I can't wait to populate the data lake with a bash script and a for loop. Ooh. <laughs> hey, so, so, so indulge me what is the difference between PowerShell and CLI oh, CLI is command line interface right PowerShell is a CLI what is the difference well it wasn't one a scripting language and CLIs are commandlets that you run I mean no, I, I would disagree I'm stretching I'm stretching I'm stretching okay <laughs> Amazon Chime for JavaScript supported on Ubuntu now. Ah, I love a open SDK that's for a specific language on a specific operating system. It's just the lock-in is amazing. 
<laughs> what CEO demanded, like, like someone very specific demanded this feature, and I want to know who it was. I want to run my very own copy of your messaging service. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. That is it. Amazon RDS for SQL Server supports bulk insert on highly available DB instances using Amazon's S3 integration. This is one of those stories where you're like, do you understand that SQL Server is a system that takes bulk data and inserts it into tables? By default, in general, through a SQL command, any ODBC driver can do this. You know, you wrote a wrapper that reads a file off S3 and shoves it into an ODBC driver. Bravo, Amazon. Bravo. Slow clap. Amazon RDS for SQL Server now supports SQL Server reporting services, SSRS. Uh, so is this a mission that QuickSight's dead again and, and Redshift? Like, what, why? <laughs> there is one person who needed this. <laughs> no, that's not true. SRS is, SSRS is used a lot, annoyingly. Surely this is going to enable migrations because now, no, now you can really seriously move your data to RDS and still have the same access to it for the BI people. I did see this morning that uh, after the cutoff for the, the CloudPod show topics, SSIS, which is SQL Server Integration Services, is also now available in RDS. Uh, I just didn't put it in the show notes because it was after the cutoff. But uh, apparently these are definitely features people want for migration needs, I think, is why we're seeing these now pop up. I want them to name something the SS Minnow. That's all I want. Nice. <laughs> AWS Single Sign-On supports zero downtime external IDP certificate rotation. That's cool. Hey, I have no funny zinger. Yeah. Because this is actually a giant pain in the ass when you have to do this. So like, yay. Thank you. (laughs) I'll take this one. Thank you. I appreciate it. (laughs) Moving on. You're not worthy. (laughs) AWS Artifact Service launches new user interface. Which makes me super mad because I saw AWS Artifact and I was like, oh my God, did they release something for Artifactory so I don't have to store artifacts somewhere else? And it's, nope, nope, this is the service that lets me download their SOC report. Thanks for that new UI. Because if there's one thing my, my audit team needs, it's a fancy new UI. <laughs> yes, because they you know, struggled to figure out the first UI, so the second one can only be better. Uh, but you know, I I will be super upset when you know whenever Amazon actually releases a, a competitor to Artifactory other than S3 because I know everyone uses S3 for this use case. Uh, you know that they won't be able to name it AWS Artifact because <laughs> this has been stolen from them. And I feel Ooh. I feel angry for that two pizza box team now. <laughs> I just realized they probably also base this UI off of the S3 UI. It's a possibility. I bet it's fantastic. I'm just surprised we didn't catch this one and pull it out of the lightning round and. Before uh, before we got this far, <laughs> <laughs> I would I would have loved to hear just for because I was so annoyed about the name. I would have I would have I would have argued that should be here. <laughs> <laughs> you easily back up and restore your SAP HANA database to and from Amazon S3 with AWS Backend Agent. This doesn't sound expensive at all. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it was expensive when you say SAP HANA, you know it's going to be expensive no matter what you do. If I had a backup HANA, I would be happy about it. But I, I next you now wonder why they don't have native backup agents for all databases, uh, considering the, how many of them they run in RDS. Yeah, actually, especially as they have marketplace offerings for those things, like they have marketplace SQL Server, why don't they have a solution for backing those things up? It's very not cloud native. Good points. Not as good as Ryan's. <laughs> <laughs> Amazon DynamoDB now supports empty values for non-key string and binary attributes in DynamoDB tables. So now I can now debug my app that says blank values in the tables. Great. <laughs> oh, and now we can spend money on not storing any data in DynamoDB. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Amazon Forecast now supports new automated data imputation options for the related and target time series data sets. Wow. This thing still hasn't forecasted itself out of existence, huh? Yeah. <laughs> you told me earlier that I was going to win the lightning round. Nah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. AWS CloudFormation now supports blue-green deployments for Amazon ECS. Now, when my stack goes into a rollback status, I can do it across two environments. <laughs> Imagine that. We need a new color. What's, what do you get if you mix blue and green? Brown. Brown. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well, that's, that's fair enough. We'll go that way. Blue emoji deep, uh, deployed. 
AWS Elastic Beanstalk adds traffic splitting deployment policy. I thought splitting was what Jack did on the Beanstalk. He split the beanstalk. He split it open. It fell down. I was trying. John, Justin, you're lucky I don't take a point away for that one. No. No. Ooh, negative points. I like that. Oh, excellent job, everybody, tonight. And Ryan gets his first point. You're on the board. Yes. On the board. On the board for what? Tonight, I started to wait for your comments. It was like Barry Bonds coming up, and everyone takes out the cameras and starts to take pictures. I couldn't wait. <laughs> I noticed your internet seems to be better at your your other location. It seems uh, gig uh, Google gig fiber in our building. That'll help every nice. time. Yeah. All right. Well, that is it uh, for this week in the Cloud Pod. Any uh, anything you guys are excited about coming up in the next few weeks? Yes. Excited about getting out of the house. Maybe that's the one thing I'm looking forward to. Like, can I just go somewhere? Like, I don't even know where I'm going to go at this point. Like, (laughs) just just somewhere. Yeah, I I just like to go have a bar, a beer at a bar. That'd be nice. Yeah, me too. That's one thing I'm kind of hoping is they do that that ten person limit, and then we get to pick what ten people go with us to the bar, (laughs) and then it's like favorite bar with elbow room. It's going to be perfect. I've been spending a lot of time in um, Google Earth on the Oculus Rift in the past few days. Because it's 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 been I mean I've lived in a lot of places over the past twenty five years and so it's been neat to just sort of fly around Google Earth and see the places and see the way they look today and fly to someplace else. It's been kind of reminiscent and also just being you know sort of having almost the uh, the physical presence in a place that is not this house. (laughs) Yeah, really, (laughs) it's it's kind of enjoyable. But no, Google Earth's uh, awesome. If you can't do it in real life, you may as well do it virtually. Mm -hmm. I love it. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, that's definitely one way to do it. It'd give me a headache, but, you know, I appreciate it. (laughs) All right, guys. Well, we'll see you next week here at the Cloud Pod. Good night. Awesome. See ya. Bye, everybody. And that is The Week in Cloud. We'd like to thank our sponsor, Foghorn Consulting. Subscribe on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts and tweet us your feedback at hashtag the Cloud Pod. Or join our Slack channel. Go to our website, thecloudpod.net, for sign-up instructions. (laughs) 